Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a live Good Games vlog, where I discussed my initial impressions for Fairy Tale Inn, Navigador, Shipyard, as well as the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Now, I do want to point out that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope you would consider directly supporting that campaign, and you can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash Games. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, let's now go ahead and start things off. Uh, the first game is going to be Fairy Tale Inn, and this one is a very recent um, uh, uh, publication. <laughs> I only learned about this one on Twitter a few weeks ago. Uh, I saw some photos of it popping up, and um, you'll see those very soon. Uh, the big thing about this game, though, is that, uh, well, I guess I should just show the photo now because that is the big thing about this game. Uh, <laughs> this looks like Connect Four, which is a game that I played a ton when I was a kid, and I think a lot of people probably have as well, but uh, in particular, this looks like um, a more complicated Connect Four because you have this plastic uh, device in between you and your one opponent, and then you are sliding tokens down in various columns. But instead of these being uh, like, you know, red and black tokens and you're trying to connect four in a line, instead you are going to be uh, trying to connect various uh, tokens in different colors to get victory points. So it's kind of like Connect Four the Euro, at least that is how. I, I thought it was at the start. Uh, after looking into it a little bit, I immediately bought a copy of it off the Board Game Geek Marketplace. I received a copy and I played it twice in a row just a couple of days ago. Uh, now let's talk a little bit more about the mechanics before I talk about my impressions of it. Um, in this game, there are uh, eight different fairy tale um, characters that, that you can choose from, and you always grab five of them randomly out of those eight. Then there are these little square tokens for each, and there is a colored side on one and a kind of uh, black and white version, or I guess a, a penciled in version on the other side. You shuffle all these up inside a bag, and then you reveal four of them onto a market out on the board. Um, now on your turn, you have to take one of these tiles and then slide it down one of the columns in the middle of this uh, device in the middle of the table that again, looks just like a Connect Four uh, game. And the tile that you take will either be free or you might actually have to spend one or two coins depending on where that tile is on this sliding market. Um, now coins are victory points. That's how you win the game. You want to have the most of these. So if you're spending one or two coins, you're spending one or two victory points to place those tiles. Um, now, once you place a tile down, the rest of the tiles slide on this market so they get cheaper as time goes on, which is a tried and true incentivization mechanic where the new stuff costs more stuff. In this case, it costs victory points. Now, each one of these different characters has a card associated with them, and those explain the specific details of what those characters do. Uh, some of them have an ongoing effect. For example, the evil queen um, has a kind of negative effect for your opponent. If you put an evil queen down and they put a token on top, they have to pay you a point or a coin, which is obviously bad. Um, now, this actually brings me to an interesting point because in Connect Four, which I keep coming back to, the tokens are the same on either side, but in this one, you have a full color version and a penciled version. And when you drop these tokens down, you make the full colored version towards yourself. This way you can easily tell as the game goes on which of these tokens you put down and which your opponent put down. And that's very important because, like I said, that evil queen will force your opponent to pay you a, uh, a victory point if they put a token immediately on top of that. And you have to know whose evil queen that is. Um, now there are other types, like, uh, for example, the princess uh, that has a immediate effect when you drop it down. And the princess, in uh, this case, gives you one one coin, and then you get additional coins for every other princess on the diagonal. So uh, placing a princess in a spot could give you multiple other coins. Um, in uh, this first game that I took a photo of, I got a lot of points for princesses. I got a bunch of them on the diagonal, and those coins were really great. I mean, coins are victory points, and also coins are good for having better control over which tiles you want to take from the marketplace. Um, now, the last type of uh, tile are endgame ones. Um, in the picture example here, we have the big bad wolf and I believe uh, Pinocchio. Yeah, uh, and uh, for the Big Bad Wolf, you just get three extra coins if you have the most of the Big Bad Wolves facing you on each row. So you have a little bit of a competition there. And then the Pinocchios get you extra coins at the end of the game for each of your opponent's tokens that are there. Um, so for example, there is a Pinocchio that my opponent played and I have three of my tokens next to it, which means that Pinocchio gave my opponent three coins at the end of the game. So you, are, you have to be wary about putting your own tokens next to Pinocchios of your opponent. Now, as I said, every time you play the game, you take five random 
of these uh, different characters. So that means you're going to have different mixes of these different types. And we played this game once and then immediately took the three that we didn't have in the first game, uh, put those aside, and then shuffled up the other ones and pulled two more out. So over the course of those two games, we got to see everything. And um, myself and my friend Mike really enjoyed this game and were surprised at how thinky it was. Because from a theming perspective, you know, it's fairy tales, it's you know, the princess, there's a, the three little pigs and Pinocchio. It seems very light and easygoing, but the decisions here are not, <laughs> or at least not all the time. Uh, there were many uh, uh, turns where I just looked at the uh, tokens in the market and I just really had a hard time figuring out where I would go that wouldn't help my opponent out more than me because you're thinking about like the big bad wolf majority if that one's in the game. You're thinking about, well, I really want to put this here, but it's next to my opponent's Pinocchio and that's going to give them a coin. And this is a two-player only game, so you have to constantly think about that competition. Like, it's not like it's a three-player game where you help one person but not another. In this one, you really have to pay attention to those things. And also on top of that, the actual plastic board that you're playing in has various bonuses. Um, you might get extra coins for dropping a token in a certain spot. You might be able to spend a coin to take a uh, bonus turn, which can be really impactful, taking two turns in a row, although you do have to spend a victory point. And there are these two spots right in the middle that actually negate the powers of those locations. They're very um, centralized locations, so that makes sense. And so this is just more stuff that you have to think about while you are <laughs> considering all of the stuff that's going on. So um, overall, I have been really impressed with this game. I don't generally play two-player games all that much, um, but the... <laughs> The Connect 4-ness of this one uh, caused me to go out and get a copy of it. And realistically, the only weakness that I see in this game is the fact that there are eight characters and you choose five of them each game. Uh, in our case, we didn't go random for the second game. We intentionally pulled out the other um, three so that we could see all of them over the course of those two games. But now that I've played it twice with all of those, I've seen all of the characters. But I haven't seen how they all... Uh, mixed together. Uh, for example, there is the Pied Piper and um, Jack and the Beanstalk, both of which let you put two tokens down instead of one. And in our second game, we had both of those out, which meant the board got a lot uh, more full a lot quicker because we were putting out double tokens frequently because of how that worked. And I could see um, a game with a whole bunch of the end game scoring ones being quite interesting, where in the middle of the game, you're not really getting much, but at the end, you have a huge payout. And yeah, I, I was just really impressed. Uh, I was at first thinking maybe this is a game I could play with uh, friends and some of their children, but after getting about halfway through one game of this, we realized that um, there was... I don't know, too much going on uh, to play this, uh, certainly with uh, my friend's uh, seven-year-old daughter, uh, or at least um, uh, that we felt that way in that situation. I'm sure some seven-year-olds might be able to uh, figure it out. I mean, mechanically, it's fine. You just take the thing, slide it down. But the um, the way all of these things intermingle, all of the strategy and whatnot, um, was, was much deeper than I expected. So this is one I, I really don't see getting rid of. I guess I do want to say the other um, issue with this game is the size of the box. Uh, for a two-player game that only takes 15 to 20 minutes to play, it's a rather large size box. I think it's a ticket to ride size box. So that takes up a lot of space on the shelf. But it also can't be that much smaller because of this plastic um, device that actually holds all of the tokens. So maybe it could be a little bit thinner, but honestly not a whole lot thinner than the box actually is. So I do have to keep that into consideration as well. But the nostalgia of the Connect 4 uh, part of my brain that loved that game when I was a kid, combined with all of the wonderful decisions that are combined here, means I, I do think this is a game I'm going to be keeping um, for probably the long run. I'll try to find space for it in my collection. Uh, this is one that I hope to play more in the future, certainly as a two-player filler type experience, um, you know, from waiting for somebody else to finish a game and there's a couple of us, um, I could easily teach this game in, you know, five minutes to uh, most of the people I play games with and then play the game in 15 to 20. So that that means it's very flexible to be fit into those circumstances. And, you know, the size of the box means I am probably more likely to actually see it on the shelf <laughs> compared to some of the other smaller two-player games that I have. Uh, so yeah, that, that's essentially everything I have to say about Fairy Tale Inn. Um, I'm looking forward to playing it more. I'm looking forward to finding opportunities to play it more. I just think it's uh, aesthetically really cool. It's got a bunch of great decisions in there as well. And I guess that isn't too surprising considering uh, the designer of this game or one of the designers is Paolo Mori and he's made a lot of games that I really enjoy. So a uh, big thumbs up for me for Fairy Tale, and I'm really glad I purchased a copy of this one. All right, the next game we have is Navigador, and um, this is a very different experience. <laughs> this is a two to five player game um, that takes 60 to 90 minutes to play or so. And the main reason that I'm playing this game is because I am in the process of getting ready to do a top 10 uh, Rondell games list. I'm hoping to do that in a week or two, and so I've been doing a bit of research to try and fill out 
um, all of the Rondell games that I've been meaning to play for years, but never quite got to. Um, Navigador was at the top of the list, honestly. Uh, this is a Matt Gertz designed game, and he has designed many games that have the Rondell mechanic in it, which is essentially a circular, usually clockwise action selection system. Um, so Navigador is one that lots of people said, oh, I got to try, and I've never actually got around to playing it. So I made that happen. I played a game of this one with my friends. I think it was a three-player game, uh, and I played this one about a week or so ago. Now, um, before I even tell you how the game works, I want to start by saying I really like this game. Uh, I, I was very impressed with it, and I've already started to uh, put my finger into the wind to see if I can uh, get a copy of it for a reasonable price. It doesn't seem like it's crazy expensive, but um, either way, uh, let's talk about how Navigador works before I talk about what I thought a little bit more. Um, now, as you can see, there is a board in the middle of the table, and you have a bunch of um, ocean spaces kind of going around Africa and all the way over to India. And the key part of this game is the rondelle, which is again, a circular action selection uh, mechanic, and this one is right in the middle of the board. Um, now, in this game, each player has a single pawn, and on your turn, you have to move that pawn forward at least one space, and you have to go clockwise around the rondelle, which is a pretty standard thing in these type of games, and you can move forward up to three spaces for free without spending anything, or you can move even farther than that by spending stuff, and I won't talk about what you spend, but in general, the stuff that you spend is worth points at the end of the game, at least one point, I believe. So you want to pay attention to that. So usually you're trying to move just one to three spaces around this, and then you perform the action of the spot where you landed. And you can land where other people are. That's just fine. Um, there's no benefit or uh, uh, penalty for that. Now, as far as what you're doing with these actions, uh, out on the board, uh, everybody has ships, at least at the start of the game, over here in Portugal. And there is a sailing action, which lets you move these ships along these sea routes. Um, there's also a worker action that you can go to, and this one actually lets you purchase workers, which you slide down this track to show how many workers you have. Uh, there is also a market action, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, after that, there is the colonize action, and this uh, interacts with the ships in a pretty interesting way. Um, when you move these ships around, uh, there are these stacks of tokens next to each of the regions, and when you do a colony action, you are going to be able to take colony tokens from the specific region where you have the ships. You have to have enough ships and you have to have enough workers. I won't talk about the details of that, but you need to have both of those. And if you have lots of ships and lots of workers, then you might be able to get even more of these things. Um, now, these colony tokens will give you the ability to make various things like sugar and gold. And um, those are important for the market phase, which, again, I'll talk about soon. Uh, now, there's also this... Um, ah, privilege spot, and this lets you take these privilege tiles from a market on the board. And this is a really cool part of the game, uh, because specifically, you take these tiles and you place them down onto your own player board. Everyone has their own board. And these are going to customize your end game scoring conditions. Now, this vaguely reminded me of Concordia, which is also designed by Mackertz. Uh, Navigador came out first, uh, but much like in Concordia, as you're playing this game, one of the actions that you take is going to change your endgame multiplier for the stuff you do. For example, if you take the colony uh, privilege tokens and you put those down, you will increase the number of victory points you get at the end of the game for your colonies. Um, in this example, I currently have four colonies, and I have a modifier of two for the uh, privilege, so that means at the end of the game I would get eight points. And uh, spoiler alert, in this game, I got all four of the colony privileges, and I ended with 15 colonies. So I had 15 times four or uh, 45 victory points just from the colonies alone. That was obviously my big strategy that I pushed. Uh, now, there are other things that you can do, like the shipping action, which lets you make more ships over in Portugal, which you can then set sail around. And there is also the building spot where you can construct various factories as well as uh, shipyards, which help you build more ships, and church, uh, churches, yeah, which let you uh, build uh, or make more people at least for a cheaper rate. Um, now, I did mention I'd come back to the markets, and, um, you know, uh, there's... I should actually talk about shipping a little bit more, just a little bit more. Um, on these shipping spots, there are these um, blue spots, which are exploration tokens. And the first time you move into one of these locations, you have to come in with two ships, and um, one of those ships just disappears. And you also take that exploration token, which could be worth victory points to you at the end of the game based off of the privilege that you have. So this is one of the reasons you have to make more ships, because if you are the first one right out at the front exploring, you'll get victory points for those ships, but the ships will go away and you have to kind of make more behind. Um, now let's talk about the market. And again, I'm going into too much detail about this game already, but uh, I'll try to briefly talk about the most interesting part of this game, uh, and that is that when you go to the market, each of your colonies can make the associated goods or for that type of good, you can use the factories in order to um, essentially uh, 
I guess, uh, make some of that good. I think you, I guess you make it in the colonies and then you process it in the factories thematically, something like that. Um, either way, when you make the good from your colonies, that will uh, give you money based off of where that token is. And then the token will drop for the number of colonies you used. Or if you do the factories instead, then you will get um, a number of money that gets bigger as the token goes down. And then the token will go back up again. Uh, so in this example, I got two gold colonies and I had two gold factories, which I guess is maybe not the right thing to do. Uh, in retrospect, it seems like maybe you want to specialize in one or the other, although I did win the game. Uh, no, no, I lost on the tiebreaker. I lost on the tiebreaker. But either way, um, I could either push this token down twice because of my colonies or push this token up twice because I have these two factories. Okay, uh, that gets you money, and then you, you need money to do all these other things, and that is a rough idea of what you're doing in Navigador, and this, at this point, I should talk about what I actually think about it. Um, now, I was super impressed by this game, because this is a very elegant Euro gaming experience, where everything kind of folds back in on itself, and I just love seeing those different things. Uh, as you're going around this wheel, you are going to be setting sail, and obviously sailing is going to let you explore, which will give you points for the tokens, and position you well for going to the colony action to pick up those colonies. So sailing leads into other actions. Then you also have the workers, which you need to have in order to go to these colonies, and you also need workers to construct buildings, so that dovetails into other actions that you need. Um, and then obviously the colony action gets you colonies, which you then use in these markets spots to get money, which dovetails into the having money so that you can spend it on all of these other things. So you are just going to be going around and around here. And I just love how each thing enables the next thing to a certain extent. And the decision space of how fast and slow do you want to go around here is really interesting. Uh, for the first half of this game, I went incredibly slow. I, I stopped it almost every single uh, action along the way while my opponents were just zipping, zipping, zipping around. And I was worried. I remember thinking, Am I playing wrong? In this instance, this was my first time playing it, and the two people I played against had played it several times. Um, but then when I got to the later parts of the game, I realized that zipping around the uh, rondelle was going to be better for me. So not that I was doing it badly in the beginning, but you want to go at different speeds based off of what you want to be doing in the game. Not necessarily slow in the beginning and fast at the end, just slow when slow is right and fast when fast is right. And trying to figure out when to do these things is really, you know, the crux of the game. I suppose I should mention one other mechanical thing, and that is this Navigador uh, ship token that's over here on the rondelle. Um, you can't see it in this image, but there's a Navigador token, and one person has this token. And if they go all the way around this wheel without using that token, they will lose it. And this token gives you a free sailing action. So you can stop at the sailing spot to sail, and you can use this free uh, sailing action from the Navigador token. And this is just a gentle way for the game to push people to sail more. You don't have to go to the sailing spot. And when you use it, this goes counterclockwise around the table, which again, kind of reminds me of Concordia. Um, again, Navigador came out earlier, but you can definitely see some uh, through lines of the design. Um, so that was just another really interesting thing that I had to keep in mind. And I definitely had trouble with that um, in this game. I kept forgetting that my opponents could do a free sail action and then something else. Uh, there were two or three times in the game where the person immediately before me, um, or I guess, well, a person before my next turn did a free sail action and then colonized and took the colonies that I was setting up to get. Remember, I ended the game with 15 colonies, so that was the thing I really pushed, and I still ended up beating that player, so that felt good. But in the moment, I kept saying, ah, I need to remember that there's a Navigador token. People can have free ship actions. You have to keep that in mind. Um, so overall, I just felt like it was a really uh, smart experience. It felt like a bit of a classic. I mean, it's, um, let's see here. It came out in 2010, so it's 11 years old, um, so that is definitely a factor. Uh, Concordia, I think, came out more in 2014, 15, something like that. Um, so I, I love the classic feel. Obviously, it looks like a classic game. The art style is not amazing from it, but I have a, an affinity to this kind of stuff as well. And I just loved trying to piece together these turns. Uh, there were many moments where I got, I was just super excited to try and pull the thing off and hoping that my opponents didn't get in my way. And it was also really cool to see how different strategies could go well. Uh, as I said, I lost on the tiebreaker with a whole bunch of points. I don't remember exactly, but it was not a small amount. It was kind of surprising we had a tie. And the person who won the game on the tiebreaker had like two colonies, but they had a ton of factories and a ton of these exploration tokens. So in that game, they built this huge fleet of um, uh, ships. They built some shipyards to make that happen. And they pushed forward, grabbing exploration token after exploration token. And I came behind them with a few ships and I just kept picking up colonies. 
So I went this whole game, I think I built one ship the entire game, maybe two. Um, I did explore twice, so that was a factor, but I just kind of went in their wake. They kept exploring things and I kept just hoovering up as many colonies as I could. And it was really cool to see that when the dust settled, we had a tie score. So we both did very different things. And, um, hypothetically did them well and came to a good spot. Uh, so Navigador is a game that I do want to play again. I, I thought that um, the the way everything worked, I mean, realistically, nothing bugged me about this game. <laughs> I, I want to uh, explore this one more for sure. Uh, I can see why a lot of people mention it as one of their top Euro games. And right now I've only played it once, so I don't want to be, um, you know, I, I have to uh, understand that I have a kind of a honeymoon effect with the game, but I am very enamored with it. And I don't want to say like, this is my favorite Euro game at this point, but I think this one could uh, easily push into a top 10 uh, uh, overall games uh, list for me with a few more plays, just to make sure that I do actually like it as much as I did in the first uh, blush. Uh, and I do think, you know, a big part of that is because I desire to see elegant Euros and there aren't that many of them coming out these days, or at least that doesn't seem to be the push. So playing an elegant Euro that came out 11 years ago just kind of reminded me of the Euros that I, I really like and um, made me want to see even more of these and want to play even more games like this. Uh, so yeah, I am hoping to get a copy of Navigador at some point. I have a big collection of games already, so I have to keep in mind that if I get this, I'm probably going to have to get rid of something else. Uh, but either way, I'll see how that goes. Um, and um, overall, I'm very happy that I'm doing this top 10 Rondell list uh, because it forced me to finally play this game. All right, let's see. I just want to check real quick to see if there's any comments related to this or the last game. Uh, oh, uh, somebody asked if I looked into Endeavor. Uh, I've actually played Endeavor before, and I'm pretty sure I covered my initial impressions of that one, uh, specifically of the second edition. I played the first edition as well, so um, you could search for that in uh, my impressions logs if you want to find me talk about that one. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Matt asked um, how this one compares to Concordia. Um, now, both Navigador and Concordia obviously are designed by the same designer, and they bo they're both very elegant Euro games, so there is that to keep in mind where, you know, everything kind of dovetails together, but they felt like very different games to me. Uh, Concordia has you, um, you know, putting out houses on the map. You are getting uh, production for those specific houses. There's extra costs based off of where people are. Like in this game, there's no penalty for being where somebody is. I mean, you kind of want to move your ships along and grab colonies before your opponents do, but there isn't that territory acquisition feel to it. And the uh, things that you get victory points at the end of the game uh, for are uh, the colonies that you take, the factories that you have, um, the exploration tokens that you grab, the uh, shipyards that you made, and the churches that you have made. So Obviously, these are all things that you want to do anyway, and you probably want to maybe go hard on one or two of these things um, to do well. Um, and in Concordia, you usually want to find a thing or two that you do well at as well, like maybe you go hard on Saturn or really, uh, uh, really push towards Jupiter or something like that. But I feel like there's a lot more, well, there's a lot more endgame score customization in Concordia. Every single card that you take in Concordia has a endgame um, uh, scoring condition on it. Whereas in this game, there's just one action spot that you swing by every time you go around the rondelle to pick up one of these things. And when you do that, when you plunk, plunk that token down, you do get a cash payout for how you are doing. So that's nice. But for the most part, this is a uh, end game victory point action. Whereas in Concordia, when you get those end, conditional end game points, they're attached to cards that are also actions that you can do. So in this game, it often felt like I should stop and do a privilege action. I could use some more money, but man, I'd really like to do a market or a build action instead because it feels like you have to kind of pause and grab those victory points and then push forward. Um, now, that's not always the case because you can get money for putting these down, but I think that's a pretty significant difference. Um, also, in Concordia, you're obviously customizing your hand um, of actions that you are doing, whereas in this game, the rondelle is always exactly the same. So they, you know, again, Concordia is more of a territory acquisition feel. Like it isn't a majority style game, but it, it has more of that going on. Whereas this one felt more like a, a combo-y situation. I mean, you have to combo things in Concordia as well. Um, if you go really high up, you can certainly find some uh, similarities, but I could easily see owning this one and Concordia at the same time and playing them for different reasons. I will say that I think Concordia will probably play faster than this one. Uh, our three-player game probably took close to two hours, maybe an hour, a little over an hour and a half, somewhere in between there. Um, I think I had some pretty big analysis paralysis moments as I was trying to grapple with things to do. And I could certainly see this one going faster, but I do think Concordia is a, a faster experience overall.
Uh, oh yeah, uh, Stephen mentioned that um, the market is very different in this uh, game as well, and that's that's a really good point. Uh, the market is a huge part of this game, in particular because when you do a market action, first of all, there's two market action spots on the rondelle, and when you do this action, you are modifying the marker for other players. That means you can easily set somebody up for a huge payout, or you could do something that will really hurt the amount of money they're going to get. And I guess the um, uh, the 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 oh my gosh. I can't remember the name. It's flying out of my head. The, the the thing that you do to produce regions in Concordia. My gosh, I've played Concordia like 20 times uh, where you could produce and uh, everyone else can as well. Um, when you do that action, it will affect other people. And sometimes somebody will be upset that you did that before they were going to do something else. But this market mechanic, it, it doesn't feel all that similar to Concordia. So that definitely makes this one feel different. Um, Steven says, I wonder if there's a team variant that would work for Navigador like it works well in Concordia. Um... I'm not so sure. I mean, I mean, maybe in the team version of Concordia, which is Concordia Venus, um, you play a card and then do actions and then your partner across the table has to do that exact same action. Um, I guess in Navigador, you could move on the rondelle and then your, par your partner would have to do the exact same one. But a big part of Venus is also not really knowing what's in your partner's hand exactly and trying to figure all that stuff out, whereas this is an open information game. There is nothing hidden. Uh, I'm not saying a team version of Navigador, Navigador wouldn't work, but um, my, my first gut instinct is that um, it'd probably work a lot better in Concordia. All right. Um, oh, one more thing. Uh, Steven says there is an expansion for Navigador that adds in one-time use cards that you can grab with your privilege. It's pretty good. Oh, that's cool. So the privilege, again, is the action that lets you uh, get the uh, conditional scoring. Uh, I just said you get money, but if there's an expansion where when you do privilege, you also get a one-time bonus, that would incentivize that more. Although I do have to admit that it didn't seem like the privilege needed that much incentivizing. Um, within each of the game's three acts, I didn't talk about that, but there's kind of like there's Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3, uh, you refill this privilege board, and there's not that many of these tokens. So um, when we actually got um, near the end of the second act of the game, there was no privilege. And it was actually interesting because the privilege rondelle action spot felt like a speed bump because we couldn't do anything. There was no privileges to even grab, so you had to kind of get over it to do the things that you wanted to do, which was kind of cool. Um, parts of the game, you just wanted to stop at privilege, and other parts, it was just kind of a hindrance, and it was in the way. Uh, I would certainly not shy away from trying uh, that expansion, though. That sounds cool. All right, let's now move on to the next game, which is Shipyard. Now, this one, much like Navigador, uh, is, uh, was played by me because of research for the top 10 Rondell games list that I'm still putting together. Uh, this one was also right there at the top of the list of games that I was told I really should play before I make that list. Um, and this one is uh, was designed by Vladimir Suhi. Uh, now, this one came out in 2009, so a similar time period to Navigador when that one came out. Um, and uh, Vladimir Suhi uh, is probably most famous for doing uh, Last Will or maybe Underwater Cities these days. That was a really good game that was a pretty big hit for them. Uh, so I am a fan of essentially every uh, one of their games that I've uh, played. So that made me also quite excited to try out Shipyard. It's a two to four player game that takes about 120 minutes to play. And we played a, I think it was a four player game. Uh, yeah, it was a four player game. Uh, so Shipyard is an interesting game, and I was told specifically I had to play this one because it's not just a rondelle game. It's a game that has, like, what, one, two, three, four, four to five rondelles based off of how you want to uh, define what a rondelle is. Uh, so <laughs> I figured I had to play it. <laughs> like, most games have one rondelle if they have any, and this one just has rondelles everywhere. Uh, now, mechanically, um, I'll try to go maybe a little bit more high level with this one. I went into the weeds too much with Navigador. Uh, mechanically, in this game, there is this action uh, market, essentially, a track around the middle of the table with these action tokens on them. And each player has a pawn. Um, now, play goes clockwise around the table. And when it's your turn, you are going to move the spot where your pawn is and the action on it all the way to the front of the line. And then you will move your pawn to an action that's currently open and then do that action. So right off the bat, um, this one, um, this is arguably uh, a rondelle, although it really depends on how uh, into the weeds you want to get because you're kind of going clockwise. But either way, it's a um, circular uh, action selection type of system. Uh, I don't know if I would consider it a rondelle, but it does mean that when you go to an action, 
that means somebody else can't do that action until you leave that action to do something else. So it almost has more of a worker placement vibe where the incentivization uh, for the spots changes because when you place a token down, you get one uh, money for every pawn that is ahead of you. So the farther back you go, the uh, more money you get. But if a token is far back, that means people have probably been avoiding that token. So it might be less good in the particular moment, or maybe it's a great situation where it's good for you and not good for your opponents. Um, now, that's one of the rondelles, and out here on the table there is another one. Uh, there's actually a rondelle within a rondelle, and each of these is uh, associated with the various actions here on the board. Uh, up here, the, uh, one of these actions lets you move a token around this green rondelle, which is going to give you access to propellers, as well as potentially people who are going to be going onto your ships. And it occurs to me, I've ar I'm already in the weeds on mechanics, I should talk about the broad vibe for this game. Uh, in this game, it's called Shipyard. You are going to be building ships in your shipyard, and then you are going to be setting sail with them and trying to get a bunch of points for them. Um, so you are constructing these ships piece by piece on your player area, and um, there's a whole bunch of uh, things that you can do. Um, your ships uh, are, first of all, kind of a puzzle. You have to put them down, and once you place them, you can't move them, and the size of your ships is going to affect the amount of stuff you can do with them. Um, you can put, you need to have captains on them, you can put sails, which will help you move. Um, you can also add cranes, which will help you potentially get victory points, and um, very other icons, and all of these things are tokens. Um, the pieces of the ship are tokens. The, the various uh, laborers that you can put on the ship are tokens. The sails are tokens. This game has a lot of different tokens um, compared to Navigador, which, you know, just had money, I guess, and I guess those those uh, buildings that were on the table, but this one has just piles and piles of tokens. Um, now, these tokens are, again, associated with rondelles. Uh, you have a green rondelle, which will give you some people or a uh, propeller, and then a brown one around the outside, which could give you things like cranes, guns, and steam stacks, and that kind of thing. Now, when you do these actions, you're going to move around these rondelles, and you can move one space for free, or you could spend, I believe, money, um, it's been a couple weeks since I played this one, to go farther clockwise around to get the thing that you want. Um, there is a Another rondelle where you can move this token around in order to pick up employees, which will give you um, um, essentially powers that you have for the rest of the game. Uh, conditional things where when you do this, you get that bonus. Or every time you do this one thing, another thing happens. So it really intensifies doing things. For example, in um, this game, um, I had a hidden goal. I won't really talk about the hidden goals too much, but when the game is over, these are things you can reveal to get bonus points. I had a hidden goal to have a bunch of captains on my ships, or I guess. After one captain, they're called officers. So I picked up an employee that said every time I moved on the green rondelle, every time I did an action there, I would get a captain. So what that means is in this game, I tried to do that action as often as I could. And sometimes I picked up a captain and then a bonus one for my employee. Other times I picked up things like a propeller and I got a captain because of that employee tile that I had. Now, another thing in this game is these train cars, which you can acquire through actions, and then you can also spend these tokens to get a variety of uh, money as well as other tokens uh, from this rondelle where you're gonna be moving a pawn around. So as you can see, there's just so many of these rondelles, and for each of them, this is different from Navigador because they are neutral rondelle pawns. I move this pawn, and then it stays there for my next person's turn. So that means in this game, there are lots of times where you want to do an action, you're kind of planning around it, and then somebody moves that pawn, and you're like, wait, ah, now it's gonna be crazy expensive to go all the way back around, and you have to maybe alter your plan or just spend a bunch of money. Speaking of money, this game has an interesting thing where you have this kind of incentivized worker placement-y, track -y kind of thing in the middle, but every turn you can spend six of your money in order to immediately take a second action, and it can be any of these actions. So that means there is blocking where somebody can take the action you want, but if you have money, then you can get around that and say, you know what, somebody, um, you know, maybe did the uh, take pieces of the ship action and I really need to do that right now. Um, well, I'll just spend six money and then do that as well. Um, taking these pieces of the ship is another action. And um, I think the last mechanic I want to briefly mention are these canal tokens. Another one of these actions lets you pick up these canal tokens and the cost for doing these things is printed with numbers. And these canals are going to be placed in your own area and you can kind of stack them next to each other and you have this single boat. Now, whenever you do a uh, boat building action and you finish a boat, which means you have a front, you have a back, and all the pieces in the middle, the boat is immediately going to set sail. Um, when that happens, you are going to get victory points for 
a whole bunch of stuff, the various tokens that you have littered all over your boat. Um, and your boat is going to move depending on these tokens, and you will actually move this token on your canal uh, tiles, and you will gain bonuses for the icons that you uh, uh, move onto or move past. Now, you can get multiple of these canal tiles next to each other to try and set up a long track if you're going to be moving a bunch, or you might make a gigantic ship that barely moves, and that's fine. But this is just one more thing that you have to pay attention to. You have to build your ship. You want to have the right tokens to score things that you want, and you have to make sure there's a good canal for you to move on, as well as, as one that has icons that will give you extra benefits. So hopefully this should give you an idea that there's just a lot going on in this game. There's a lot of tokens, there's a lot of mechanics, and from a high-level perspective, I do feel like the mechanics are pretty elegant with the way they um, they, they tail into each other. Uh, specifically, you know, you need these canals in order to sail on them. You need these ship tokens to actually build out that ship. But in a game that has so many different tokens, um, I do have a hard time calling it elegant. I'm not sure if it really deserves that moniker. Uh, we'll just have to see maybe if I play this one some more. Uh, I've only played this one on Tabletop Simulator, and I can only imagine the piles of steam tokens, of uh, crane tokens, of captains, and, um, you know, uh, workers and propellers and all this stuff just kind of scattered all around the table. It just seems like a lot that's going to be out there. Um, now, speaking of the word a lot, when you are thinking about what you're going to do on this game, there is a lot to think about. And I did enjoy this game. I'll say right now that I enjoy this one less than Navigador, but I did enjoy this game because the, uh, specifically because the puzzle of piecing together these ships was just a lot of fun. Uh, it was uh, a cool thing to see uh, the different spots that you need. Um, you may not notice, but these tokens have different uh, little graphical things on them, like maybe life preservers or lanterns. And um, these are things that can give you conditional points if you have uh, lantern spots or life preserver spots over here on your canal tiles. So you are not only trying to extend your ship out so that you can put more people and cranes and that kind of thing on it, but you also want to match these icons to the canals that you have. And again, in order to get all these things, you are going to be performing actions to buy them from various markets, or you could also go here and spend the rail cars that you purchased to get the various different things. It's one of those games where you can get where you need to go from a wide variety of ways, and figuring out the best way to get there is the crux of the game. Uh, now, I did mention that each player has these endgame scoring uh, tiles. At the beginning of the game, you uh, get three of them, and at a certain point, you have to discard two of each type, so you will end the game with just one. And this really is where the strategy of the game comes into play. You need to play towards these. I definitely did with the one that was all about having lots of captains, and my opponents did as well. Um, I, I think I lost this game by a couple of points, um, which was kind of interesting, because in this game, I went for really big ships. I had a goal card, which I'm not showing here, uh, that said I wanted to have, I believe, two or maybe three ships that were size seven or larger. I think that's what it was. So I was making these really big ships, whereas another one of my opponents, um, which isn't really on screen here, but they tried to make tiny ships. They had like six or seven ships at the very end of the game. Another opponent was just making nine size ships, which is, I think, as large as they can go, not necessarily because of a goal, but just they just were having fun building gigantic ships. And of course, they spent you know, half the game putting together one size nine ship, but then when they scored it, they got so many points for because it was just covered into different things. Uh, I do want to mention that when you are putting these ships together, you don't have to commit these different tokens. They can kind of live over here in a nebulous space in your shipyard area, and it's only when you complete that ship and set sail that you have to decide, but you can obviously think about it as the game is going on. So overall, I enjoyed this game. Uh, um, not as much as Navigador, I think mostly because there was just so many things to consider that it, it kind of made my brain get a little bit murky. Um, you have to consider how far the ship is going to be going based off of the different tokens you have. If you have a propeller and a smokestack, you'll actually go even farther and it increases the uh, return rate you get for movement on various steam stacks. There's just all of these icons on your player board, which are great. They do help teach the game well uh, and explain the victory points that you get for all of these things. But man, it's it's a little overwhelming, the amount of things that you can consider with all of these options. And, and I do also have to admit that there were a few times when playing this game, especially later on, where it was my turn and I had a hard time finding an action that I wanted to do. It seemed like uh, specifically these employees later on in the game didn't feel like a great option for your turn because you might not get that much benefit out of them. Although some of these do give victory points. Again, I only played this game once, so maybe I'm being dumb and it's always good to take these employees. I'm not really sure. But it, it did seem like there were many turns where the tough decision was not, um, oh my gosh, I have so many things I want to do. It was more what's actually going to be good for me this turn. And I feel like, you know, I keep comparing this to Navigador because I just played that as well. In that game, it was more often. I want to do all of these things 
how badly do I want do I want to do every single one of them as I slowly go around to the rondelle? Or is it worth skipping over this thing that I want to do so that I'm faster to get around to the other things? Whereas in this game, there were frequent moments where I said, eh, that's not very good. Eh, that's not very good. Eh, that's not very good. Okay, which of these do I like the most of these options that aren't that great? And maybe that's just me putting myself in a position that's not great. Um, but um, those moments didn't really sour the mood. It's just kind of a different mental perspective. And again, I only played this game once, so maybe that's a rare thing that just kind of happened because of groupthink that we had at our table. Um, yeah, so that is essentially uh, my feeling on Shipyard. I, I don't think I'm going to try to go out and buy a copy of this one, but I would not turn down playing, uh, playing it again. Our four-player game, I think, took around two hours, which is not bad for for a Euro game of this overall kind of weight. And uh, I'm really ha happy that I got to play it. And I do think it is going to make the top 10 list um, because uh, specifically the rondelles were fun. I mean, just rondelles after rondelles. Somebody moves a neutral rondelle in a position you don't like. Well, maybe you move a different one because there's so many of them to choose from. And it's really cool to see how all that works, especially in an older game. I mean, I guess... 2009 isn't that old, but uh, as far as looking uh, into researching all these rondelles, it doesn't seem like that mechanic was um, made all that recently uh, or, or all that long ago. I think um, it depends on your definition, but I think Antique is maybe considered to be the first rondelle game, and I think that one came out in like 2005, so just a few years uh, prior to this. So <laughs> this game was like, I see your rondelle, and I'm going to multiply it by four or five and see where we go, and where you go is, is a pretty cool game. All right. Uh, Steven says there is a circular action track like Shipyard in Craftwagon that also is a hybrid rondelle Takedo type time track. Uh, yeah, I actually, um, I've played Craftwagon. I think I gave it to a friend. I think it's in my local friend group. I played that one a, a couple times. I really liked it, but I have a hard time uh, thinking that that's a rondelle. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot for this top 10 list that's going to be coming out soon. I think I need to define what I think a rondelle is at the very beginning of that video, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I think the uh, time trackiness of that pushes it in a direction that I don't feel really lines up with the rondelle as much, but you know that's going to be a personal preference type thing. I've really been going back and forth as to whether I want to put uh, Craftwagon onto that top ten, top 10 list. At this moment, I'm, I'm shifting towards not putting it on the list, but we'll just have to see. Um, Al Johnson says, this sounds like Navigador is an easier teach than Shipyard. Would you agree? Um, yeah, probably. Um, I didn't teach you either of these games. That, that's worth noting. Both of them were taught to me by friends who had already played these. Uh, we have a Discord channel, and I, I, I put in there, like, does anybody know Shipyard? Does anybody know Navigador? Can anybody teach me these games so that I can play them for the top 10 list? And fortunately, both of those uh, were games that my friends had played and wanted to uh, uh, play again. Um, I do think that from a teach perspective, uh, yeah, Shipyard has a whole bunch of nooks and crannies for rules. Like, how does this rondelle work? How does that rondelle work? How does the ship scoring work? How does putting the ships together work? Um, you know, how does... Uh, you know, the canal scoring work and how does the canals go together? There's just a lot of little nooks and crannies and a lot of tokens that you have to talk about. Whereas in Navigador, there's just less tokens to discuss. And for the most part, it seems like it's a more streamlined experience. Uh, again, I haven't taught either of them, but I think if you were to ask me which one I would prefer to teach, I would probably say Navigador. Uh, yeah, so that is Shipyard. Um, maybe I'll get to play this one again in the future. Uh, again, I, I certainly wouldn't say no to it, but uh, I'm not uh, burning my way towards uh, uh, getting a copy of it. It's a fine game. It's a fine game, but uh, not as fun as Navigador, I think. All right, let's now move on to the fourth game that I'll be talking about today, and that one is The Field of the Cloth of Gold. Uh, now, this is a uh, relatively new game. It came out last year, uh, and it's a two-player only game, and this is a really fascinating game from a thematic perspective. Um, the uh, short version of a longer story is that 500 years ago, as of last June, uh, that was the 500 year anniversary, uh, there was this massive like two week party where the King of England and I believe the King of France uh, essentially tried to one up each other, spending just incredible amounts of money on stuff, trying to see who could spend the most money. So that would mean they were, you know, a bigger person or something like that. And supposedly they, you know, spent significant portions of the uh, uh, royal treasury on like a two-week party, which is just crazy. <laughs> and that's just a fun theme perspective to start off with. And I actually almost bought this game last year. I remember reading the uh, the blog article that was uh, written that, that came along with it and being fascinated by it. And um, this one is being published by Holland Spiel. And at that point, I was not really familiar with Hollandspiel as a publisher. I knew they were a print-on-demand publisher, but that's pretty much all I knew. And I remembered 
thinking that I didn't really want to spend the amount of money that it was, plus the shipping cost just for this game. So I kind of put it on the back burner. Uh, but um, subsequently, over the last year, I've become a big fan of train games, which is something that Hollenspiel does a decent amount. And um, there was a moment uh, just about a month ago where an expansion to Dual Gauge came out, and I knew I wanted to buy that. And I was like, okay, this is the moment where I'm going to buy the Field of the Cloth of Gold because it'll um, uh, integrate the, uh, the shipping cost, make that lower overall. And I remember hearing a bunch of people say that they really enjoyed this game last year. Like, it looked interesting, but hearing that people actually enjoyed playing it was, you know, certainly enough to uh, push me even more. Uh, now, this is a quick game. It's only listed as two players, uh, sorry, uh, 20 minutes. And it is, uh, it was designed by Amabel Holland. Um, and I, I believe she said in that article that, um, she designed it over the course of like one month. <laughs> like she realized that the anniversary was like a month or two away and was like, oh crap, I've been meaning to make this game for years and uh, just made this game really quickly. Um, and that is something to keep in mind that, you know, some games get made very quickly and some games don't. And if a game is made very quickly, it's probably going to be uh, on the um, shorter side when it comes to rules. And that is certainly the case with this game. Uh, now, what you have in the middle of the table is a uh, player board, kind of a cloth mat that you put out here. And then there is this action track along the top. Now, this is a two-player only game, as I said. And each player has two of these action tokens. And then you have a victory point token down over here. Now, um, on your turn, what you're going to do is select one of your pawns and you're going to move it to one of the two or sometimes three empty spots that are out here on the board. So in this example, if I was the red player, I could move this token to this white action spot over here, or I can move it onto this secret spot over there. Those are my only two action options. Uh, and I must move, so I have to go onto one of those two spots with one of my red action tokens. Now, after I go onto that spot, you'll notice there is a token directly underneath those specific locations. And what I have to do is take that token and give it to my opponent. Um, as I said, thematically, this game is all about two kings trying to outgive each other. And so in this game, mechanically, you are literally giving each other tokens back and forth every single turn. Every turn of the game, you are going to give a token to your opponent. So you have to keep in mind what you want to give them. Obviously, this is a competitive experience, so you probably want to give them something that's not going to help them out, but, you know, you only have these two options and you have to keep that in mind. Now, another big part of this game is the fact that when you go to an action spot, you are forced to take that action, and you don't necessarily always want to do that. Um, and with that in mind, I'm now going to briefly talk about these actions uh, because, well, there's really not that many of them. Um, let's skip the dragon for the moment and start with this secrecy token. Now, when you go onto this action spot, you look down to the victory point track and you'll find your token. And then the row that it's on will dictate the number of random tiles that you will take out of the bag. And then you will keep those face down in front of you. You can look at them, but your opponent doesn't get to see them. So what that means is as you score more victory points in this game, you actually get more tiles out of the bag for this action. At the very beginning of the game, that action gets you one tile. But if you have 24 points, that action is going to get you three tiles out of the bag. So that's a big deal. Um, obviously, if you have 32 or more points, well, you don't get any tiles out of the bag because once a player hits 30 points, the game ends. So <laughs> that's why there's no icon there. So um, this action is generally one you don't want to not do. Having tiles is good uh, for the most part. This next action lets you score if you have the most gold in front of you. And when you go to this action, you must reveal all gold tiles from your hidden area and put them face up. But your opponent does not have the ability to reveal any. And then if you have more gold than they do, you get two victory points. So that means if you have the tied amount or you have less, then you don't get any points and it's possible you go onto the spot and nothing actually happens. But what that means is having a bunch of gold is good. The name of the game is the Field of the Cloth of Gold. So that does make sense. <laughs> uh, the next one is a blue banner. And this one will score for your banquets, which, uh, which are these blue tiles. Now for this one, you will immediately score one, three or six victory points if you have one, two, three of these tiles or more. If you have five tiles, you'll still score the six points. And then you lose all of your blue tiles. So um, for this action, you actually don't get to keep these tiles. The gold one, you do keep. The blue one, you do not. And that's important to note. Um, now, uh, after that, there is the white one, and this one is similar. You get one point for every white piety uh, token you have in front of you, and then you lose all of your white tiles. So again, you want to probably score this when you have some of these, but then you do lose access to them, so you can't keep scoring them. After that, I'm actually going to skip over the red action and go to this one at the very end, because this one, I forget the theming of it, uh, but this one lets you score for sets. You get two victory points for every set of the four different types of tiles that you have, and then you keep those tiles. So 
this is why these lose tile actions are sometimes something you don't want to do if you are building yourself up to have a few sets so that you can try to do this action over and over again. Being forced to go here and lose all of your white tiles is terrible because that means you don't have any sets anymore. If you lose all of your white tiles, but you have everything else, you have zero sets. And that's a big thing to consider when you look at this red action here, because this one is a little more interactive. The red tiles are tournament tiles. And when you do this one, you are going to reveal the tiles from your hand. I didn't mention it, but for the blue and the white, uh, as well as this one over here, you are going to be revealing specific tiles from your hand. And the red one, you reveal red. And then each player is going to uh, participate in a tournament, which technically means you just get one point for every red tile you have in front of you, which means your opponent might score points on your turn. Now, what happens after that is you both lose all of your red tiles. So what that means is if somebody is building up a bunch of these sets and you are worried about that, well, maybe you'll go over here and perform a tournament, which forces them to discard their red tiles so they lose access to those sets so that they cannot score a bunch of points from this spot anymore. Now, the last part of this action is the fact that each player then does a secrecy action. So that means it's potentially my turn and I do a tournament to break up your sets. Well, now we both are going to draw tiles from the bag and it's possible that... Um, your opponent, when you do this action, is going to draw more tiles out of the bag than you will because maybe they have more victory points in that moment than you do. So that's something you have to consider. Now, the very last action is the dragon. And when you go here, you're going to put this neutral dragon uh, token down, and then you will gift the token that's underneath it. And you will not perform the action above it. And this is important because, again, sometimes you don't want to perform the action. So you can use that dragon to gift the token that you want that maybe doesn't help your opponent out very well, while also dodging having to do an action that's potentially devastating towards the strategy that you're trying to put together. Um, now, that's essentially the game. You're going to keep playing until all of the tiles come out of the bag or until any one player has uh, 30 or more victory points. And then for end game scoring, you just have these points shown here. Plus, you will get three, two, or one victory point for every one of these gold tokens that you have in front of you. Now, this is really interesting and honestly super weird because if you look at the victory point track, the lower you go on these rows, the less victory points those gold tokens are worth. And this is a point where my brain, when I was playing it, really started to spin out about what do I actually want to do? You might be in a situation where you have a bunch of these gold tokens and you are maybe on the 14 victory point spot and you could go onto um, maybe this gold token spot to get two victory points because you have more than your opponent. That will give you two points, bumping you up to 16. So that means you just gain two points, but every one of your gold tokens went from being worth three points at the end of the game to two. And if maybe you had like seven gold tokens, that means you gained two points, but lost seven points when it comes to end game victory points. So that means you didn't just gain two points, you actually lost five victory points. And that is uh, especially interesting when you consider the tournament, because what this means, at least from my limited play experience, is you kind of want to end the game at the far right of one of these columns. Like the ideal spot to end the game would be 15 or maybe 23, um, I guess seven yeah, you probably don't want to do seven because the first two rows make those golds worth three victory points each. Um, so yeah, you want to end this game at 15 or 23 um, because that is the moment right before you tick down to the next uh, lower level, which makes your gold tokens worth less points. And this tournament gives you gives points to your opponent. So there are situations where you might actually run a tournament, not necessarily break sets, but to push your opponent onto that next row, which could have a devastating impacts. They might, you know, have just one red token, but they're at the 23 and you force them to get one point, but then they slide down here and lose one point for all of the gold tokens they had. And that's obviously a great swing for you. That was a good tournament that you just did. Uh, but it also means that sometimes things that seem obvious are not good things to do. Like this blue action right here, getting six victory points for three tokens is an amazing rate of return. But if those six victory points push you down to another level, maybe that's terrible. And these rows are only uh, eight wide. So that means more often than not, this is actually gonna push you down to another row. So that can potentially be really detrimental. Um, so that's all strange. It's a, it's a <laughs> uh, considering all of this stuff. And then when you actually sit down to play this game and start taking these actions, you just, I at least found myself instantly surrounded by a bunch of very interesting, very odd decisions. And I really enjoyed exploring that space. Uh, we actually played this game two times in a row, uh, immediately back to back. We finished the first game and we were like, what just happened? Let's play this one again. Um, and it is worth noting that technically we played the game slightly wrong. Uh, this image is correct, but uh, when we played it, uh, we filled in all of the token spots, which you're not supposed to do, which means our games technically ended a couple turns too early, but um, I am going to play it correctly in the future. And I, I don't think that really spoils my overall impressions of the game. Um, so 
a big aspect of this game that became clear after playing it um, about halfway through the first game is that blocking is a big uh, thing. There are, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven actions in the game, and you have two tokens, and on your turn, you move one token. Now, nothing in the game forces you to move either of these tokens. You can decide which one you want to do on each turn. What that means is, in this very quick 20-minute game, you can have experiences where somebody might put a token down onto an action and then never move it the whole game. They move the other token around, which means that action might be gone for the entire game. And in fact, we had this happen in both of our games, I think largely due to groupthink between the two of us, on this blue spot right over here. It got used maybe once or twice, and then somebody had a whole bunch of blues, and the other person just left their token there so that it would never get freed up, so that the opponent could never go there and score the six points. Although we realized about three quarters of the way through the second game, like, wait a second, I could totally leave this spot because you don't want to go there because you're going to get six points, but it'll knock you down a row, which means you'll actually lose a couple points. And we realized that while at first glance, the blue action looks like the strongest one and one you want to block constantly, it's actually a really double-edged sword. And so... From a strategic perspective, I think in future games, the blue action is not going to be blocked all the time. It just was in our first couple of games. But it was an interesting um, situation, and honestly, it, it sparked some pretty cool discussions between myself and my friend, specifically about, is a game bad if you never get access to an action because you can block it for the entire game? Um, I think my answer to that is, specifically in the case of the Field of the Cloth of Gold, no, that, that, that isn't bad for the game. If this was like a two-hour game and somebody could do that, well, that might feel a little bit weird. But in this really tight, really quick, um, two-player-only experience, I think it makes a ton of sense that you have this position, especially considering you only have two tokens. So that means you are given this opportunity to potentially infinitely block one action, but you cannot infinitely block two actions. So if you're staying on that spot, then you have to move this other one around. And if suddenly that one lands on a spot that's also great for your opponent, well, now you have to move one of these tokens and maybe you'll get to the point where you decide the first one is actually the one that you want to move out of the way. And I found personally found that fascinating. Now, um, from my personal perspective on playing board games, I am drawn like a moth to, uh, to a flame uh, when it comes to interesting mechanical quirks and how things interact with each other. So I am predisposed to um, find situations like this, uh, quirky, uh, odd uh, situations like this uh, to be endearing. And I think for some people, they would actually find that quite frustrating. I also think a lot of people would be frustrated by the fact that when you gain points, when you seemingly gain points, you actually lose points. Um, again, I think that's super cool. When I kind of realized that, I was like, whoa, wait a second. We, <laughs> we are totally overvaluing that blue spot. I kind of talked it through and we both realized like, oh, and honestly, that makes me now want to play the third game a third time to see what happens uh, going forward. Um, I, I will say that in both of these games, I won, uh, but the scores were a lot closer in the second one. And interestingly enough, in the first game, I had a bunch, uh, had way more endgame points than my opponent did going into endgame scoring. And then we scored the gold tiles where I got a lot less because of this multiplier than my opponent did, but I still was able to win. And in the second game, I won and my token was lower on the track. Uh, so I actually surpassed my opponent by having um, a higher value gold token. So it didn't seem like, oh, definitely going up the track is good or, oh, definitely going up the track is bad. It just seemed like in specific moments, you had to check to make sure that you were doing the right thing for that right moment. Um, and a lot of this, uh, you know, this quirkiness, this oddness about this game circles back to the fact that this game plays in about 20 minutes. Uh, our games might've been more like 30, but we were talking a lot and honestly just having a great time uh, with the experience of the game. And, and I think that um, playing a game with these weird quirky edges like this uh, in a small time frame like that with somebody you might want to play a game multiple times with um, leads to a very pleasurable experience for me. Uh, like I said, I had a, a blast playing this game, and I don't think that's necessarily because the game is amazing, my favorite game ever, or anything like that, but it created a game state. It created a situation around the table with me and one of my good friends where we were just <laughs> taking actions and laughing and, uh, you know, being exasperated with the options that we had and, and thinking things through like, okay, I could go here, that'll, but that'll give you a gold token and then I won't have the majority in anymore. Then I won't get those points. But wait, do I even want points? Yes, of course you want points, but do you want points? Like it's just puts you into such a strange spot that I personally find very enjoyable. Um, uh, circling back to a criticism I had with Fairy Tale uh, in at the beginning, a very mild criticism that the box was very large for a quick two-player experience. This is again a two-player experience that plays in about 20 minutes, but this box is a great size. It's it's like about this big, um, you know, like you know, a foot and a half by you know, uh, 10 inches or maybe not a foot and a half. I'm bad with these things, but it, it's a standard kind of like um, uh, 
what, what am I trying to say for the podcast people out there? It's, it's a large dimension from one angle, but it's very thin. It took me a long time to get there. Uh, this box is like an inch thick or so. So it slides into a collection very easily. And I do not see myself getting rid of this one because it's so quirky. Uh, I think this is also one I would take off the shelf to play when waiting for other people to finish something up or when waiting for other people to arrive. Um, honestly, I just want to teach this one to all of my friends so that they can experience the quirks of it. And I think I'm going to try to not spoil some of them. I, you know, I don't want to like take advantage of them to just, you know, run away with the game. I'll probably say a little bit of things, but I want all of my friends to experience the oddities of this game and also um, to experience just how quick and rules light an interesting gaming experience can be. Uh, now, I do want to mention that uh, not everyone agrees with me. <laughs> I went onto BoardGameGeek uh, and looked through all of the comments and uh, let's see, it's rated right now a 7.4, which, which is pretty good, but um, the comments are pretty uh, um, polarized. There are a lot of people who say this game is really fun, tons of really thinky, hard decisions. And then there's, there's a bunch of comments of people saying, um, you know, this game is totally random. <laughs> uh, I was I was hoping for more, but, you know, just, I was just totally disappointed. And that doesn't surprise me. Uh, I think this is a game that is going to be polarizing. It's certainly not going to be for everybody. But uh, for somebody with me and uh, my uh, love of quirky mechanics and also my love of elegant systems, because I do think this is a super elegant game um, with uh, the very tight rule set, but the way these tokens just and these actions just all circle back in on each other, how you um, might lose tiles for yourself, which could break your sets, or you could break your opponent's sets. You're trying to build sets, but you're also trying to get gold because gold is the only one of these that scores for extra victory points at the end of the game. I just think all of that stuff cycles around in a really fascinating way. And I'm honestly really happy I have the game. Uh, as far as, you know, the cost to the component quality, I mean, what you see in this image is what comes in the game. It's it's not a whole lot. They're, they're tiny tokens. Um, and I think the game was $35. So for me, that was worth it. For some people, it, it might not be. But I'm looking forward to introducing this one to a whole bunch of people. And I think at this point, I am a, a bit of a broken record. Um, yeah, so that is the Field of the Cloth of Gold. And that is also going to bring me to the end of all the games I'm planning on talking about today. Um, I don't think there was any comments of people uh, chatting about that one. Uh, I will say that the Field of the Cloth of Gold is not a game that's ever going to be like at the top of the hotness. It's not surprising to me that um, honestly, most people haven't even heard of it. Um, but I do also enjoy talking about it here because I like uh, shining a light on uh, funky games like this one that aren't going to be at the top of the hotness list and aren't going to be uh, spouted about by a whole bunch of people because I think that um, around the uh, edges of um, uh, design spaces, especially when you have games made by uh, an interesting publisher like Hollenspiel with their print-on-demand uh, model, I just think that those things are going to be really fun for certain people and I, I want more people to know about them. Uh, so yeah, I think that is going to bring this to a close. Thank you so much to everybody who joined in for uh, the live part of this. And thank you to everybody who decided to join in later. Um, I have actually played Imperium Classics at this point, And I thought about talking about that today as well. But I kind of want to keep these to no more than four. And I'm hoping to maybe play a couple more Rondell games before I do that top 10 list. So hopefully I'll do another one of these good games vlogs relatively soon where I'll talk about Imperium Classics. I'm also hoping to get another game of Imperium Classics in uh, or or maybe Legends. I really enjoyed that first game, but I would like to explore it more, maybe even before I talk about it. So I should stop talking about it. Okay, that is going to bring this one to a close. Thanks again to everyone for coming by.